0: We're reading all of chapter twelve this morning. Now, about that time, Herod the king of the the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. Now it was during these days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garments and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know what was did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, "'You are beside yourself,' Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark.
1: You may be seated. Would you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, as we open your word, pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Open our minds this morning that we might grasp your truth that you have for us this morning in your word. Pray, Lord, that your word would take root, that it would shake us, stir us, it would awaken us once again to who you are and what you've done for us. Father, I pray this morning we would be ready, we would be watchful, we would be alert as your word is proclaimed. I pray, Father, that the realities of your pending judgment be pressed upon each soul here this morning. I pray that your word and your mission go forth from this place. That hope in Christ would catch a vision of what it means to be a witness to Jesus. Father, as you grant us grace to do so, I pray that we would as a body walk as Christ himself walked. And pray that your word would go with us as we walk. Father, we ask that your spirit would teach us, move mightily through us this morning as your word is preached. Father, I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is the final Sunday ...in Acts for the summer. After today, we will have covered two legs of the four in the journey in the book of Acts. The gospel of Jesus Christ is moving onward and is reaching now outward. Persecution has already come on a few different occasions. But we've seen evidence and testimony that our God, this God that we serve... ...He's strong, He's mighty... He's powerful, and He's not going to allow His church to falter. Amen. That's good news. He's not going to allow the gates of Hades to prevail against His church. You see, this God of the Word is a faithful God. He's unchanging, He's unwavering, He's unstoppable in all that He does. Today we arrive at the final destination... End of Acts 12. And as you pull off to the side of the road for a look at Acts 12, 20 through 25, what is there to see? You know, some of you may be familiar with observation points and some of you may be accustomed to taking long road trips. And when you're in the van for a long period of time or in the car for a long period of time and you come across a certain pull-off, Beautiful view and you get out of the car and maybe you have your camera with you and you're taking a picture of the family. But in the background, you're also taking notice of what God has created, His wonderful creation, the beauty of His handiwork, whether that be the sunrise, the sun setting... Maybe some stunning views displayed as you look out across a series of tall pines or snow-capped mountains. Perhaps it's a grand canyon that stretches for miles. Or a winding river valley with green grass, wildlife, birds singing, life bursting on the scene. Evidenced by new buds, color, growth. Probably are seeing the picture. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've seen that picture. Well, if you take that idea and you pull off to the side of the road and you pause for just a moment from the long ride in the van, I'd like for us this morning to get out of the vehicle and look intently at what this Word has to say this morning. The Word of God, church, has much to say. If we would but listen attentively and heed His voice... You might be inclined to wonder, as you were reading, if you had a chance to read Acts 12 again this week, and specifically 20 through 25, wondering why a message on Acts 12, 20 to 25. Why would Luke conclude this chapter with a continuation on King Herod? Why give him so much attention? Why spend time talking about King Herod? What's the big deal that King Herod died? Maybe those are some questions you asked. I'd like for us to look at these few verses at the end of Acts 12 and to be able to connect them to what Luke has been talking about. What would the Lord have to say to us this morning concerning these few verses? Let me give you the outline here up front. We'll be looking at 20 through 23. We'll see the judgment of God. We see Herod dies. In verse 24, we're going to see the word of God. We're going to see that it grows. In verse 25, we're going to see the mission of God. We're going to see that it continues. Okay? Big idea of this text. If we were just to give it a uh, short, simple understanding of, of this text. We see that the king dies. The word grows and the mission continues. Okay? That's a simple, big idea, understanding of this text. So let's look here verses 20 through 23, the judgment of God. Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Remember Tyre and Sidon along the Mediterranean coast, uh, the region of Phoenicia, right? Okay. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. Now, it's important from a context standpoint to realize that some time has elapsed here. Don't know specifically how long, could be up to a year perhaps. There was some time that had elapsed between uh, when Herod departed from Judea and arrived in Caesarea in verse 19 and what we're reading about here now in verse 20, okay? Some time has elapsed here in the text. The text says that Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Notice that the text doesn't give the reason for the king's anger. But also notice that the people of Tyre and Sidon... ...had evidence that Herod was not happy with them. Something had been going on that the people witnessed. They were recipients of the king's wrath of late... ...and were determined to set out to change that recent pattern. In fact, to allow things to continue as they had... ...their very livelihood would be at stake... ...according to what we read here in the text. Okay, so the people... The people need need to get an audience with the king. The people of Tyre and Sidon. But they need an intermediary. They need somebody who's on the inside to be able to get them an audience with the king. And so who do they go to? They befriend a man named Blastus. How do you like that name? Blastus. He was kind of the right-hand man of the king. Reminds me in many ways of... Of perhaps the role in Nehemiah's day. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. He was the one who had the inside scoop on the king, had a good relationship with the king. Blastus served this role for King Herod, and so the people of Tyre and Sidon befriend Blastus. And the text says, with one accord, they're given opportunity to gather with the king, that they might do what. Ask for peace. The need to ask for peace assumes something in the text. It assumes that some conflict has been going on, some displeasure, something the king didn't like. You see, get the king angry and you lose favor. You fall out of favor with the king and your whole country can spiral downward. That's the situation for Tyre and Sidon as we come to the text. The text goes on to say why. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. Now see, for many of us, if not all of us here today, we, we, we maybe don't understand, don't know, don't recognize what it would mean to not have food. The length that we would go to to get food, to acquire food. They were reliant upon Herod in, his country, in the region that he oversaw in Judea, they were reliant upon them for their food. So I know it's hard probably to understand what that's like, but that's the reality of the situation for the people of Tyre and Sidon. In fact, this reliance upon Judea for their food, we can go back into the scripture. There's just quite a history here. First Kings chapter 5 recounts this working relationship between King Solomon and Hiram, king of Tyre. And he says in a letter writing to Hiram, he says, you know, there is none among us. This is Kings 5, verse 6. Who has skill to cut timber like the Sidonians? And Solomon sends a letter back to Hiram. And he says, I've considered the message and I would do all you desire. Hiram's, they're writing back and forth to each other, saying what they're going to do. In the text there in Kings 5, 8 through 11. Hiram gave Solomon cedar and cypress logs according to all his desire. And Solomon gave Hiram 20 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of pressed oil. Thus Solomon gave to Hiram year after year. You see there was this working relationship. And we see this continue in the book of Ezra and on into later books in the Old Testament. There was this relationship that was going on. The reliance of food on one hand. There was a give and a take going on. A working relationship through the course of history that we see. I want you to see that there's been a relationship between Tyre and Sidon in Judea. And now here we arrive in Acts 12 with Herod ruling over Judea at this time. And there's a bit of friction in the relationship. Herod the king is not happy. Something lit a fuse in him and as we know and as we read from scripture, sometimes it doesn't take a whole lot to get a king upset, to get a king angry. For whatever reason, he's angry. And that's caused him to perhaps withhold some, if not all, of the food supply from the people of Tyre and Sidon. The people are going to great lengths to mend this relationship. Perhaps not so much because they like King Herod, but probably more so in light of their great need for food. They gain an audience with the king through Blastus. How? We do not know. Text doesn't tell us. Perhaps there was a monetary gift given to gain the king's favor. Text doesn't say for sure, but bribery is not out of the question here. Look at verse 21. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. You know, when you read uh, the account of Josephus, first century historian, he actually writes about what what the word says here. He writes about this account, this time of Herod's death. And many of the details that he provides matches what Luke pins here as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. Josephus cites this set day right here in the text. This set day, verse 21. As one that was set aside to honor the emperor who at this time was Claudius. Perhaps a birthday celebration. A significant gathering. Many important people had gathered on this day. I want you to notice the details from the text. Notice, Herod was arrayed in royal apparel. Tied into that, Josephus describes that royal apparel... ...as glittering silver, magnified all the more... ...as the sun reflected off of his attire... ...presenting this radiant effect of all who looked on. See, Herod dressed the part as king... He wanted everyone gathered to know that he was king. The attire matched the pomp and the circumstance that Herod hoped to create. But we see the text also tells us he sat on his throne. Not only did he dress the part, but he sat where he was supposed to sit. He made it apparent to all watchers that he was the king. There seems to be a delightful desire within Herod for the people to see him and to be made known. We're going somewhere with this, so hold on to these details. Third, he gave an oration to them. Herod not only dresses the part, not only places himself in the right place on his throne, but he does what many earthly kings tend to do. He gives an oration to them. He speaks to the public assembly as king. Herod looks good. He finds himself in the right position on his throne. And now he even sounds good. He's giving an oration. Speaking to these people. I want you to note something from the text. The text is speaking of an earthly king and his efforts to make himself known. Not only to the people of Tyre and Sidon, but to all those who may have been in attendance on this set day. Here's a question I want you to consider from the text application question coming out of the text. To what lengths do you go to make yourself known to others? What lengths do you go to make yourself known to others? And specifically, let's take the application from the text. There are three things here that Herod did. He arrayed himself in royal apparel. He sat on his throne and he gave an oration. So let's ask the questions. What about your attire? How much time are you spending on your clothing? When you select that shirt, that blouse, the dress, pants, shoes... What's the motivation? Who are you trying to impress? You know, there's this slogan out today in the world... ...this idea of dressing for success. Church, there's too much emphasis on attire. There's nothing wrong with dressing nicely. But I am asking this morning, in light of the text... What's your motivation with your attire? Is it pleasing to the Lord? Take it a step further. Is your attire a snare for anyone in the body? Have you ever considered that? Is it questionable at all? In other words, would this attire cause anyone around me to be distracted from the things of the Lord, from the purpose for which we gather? Herod was decked in royal attire. He looked the part. Perhaps you're here today, and you too looked the part. You've dressed up. You're here. Praise the Lord, you're here. But deep down, you know that your attire and the pursuit of a certain look, it's drawing you in. And, church, this is not a difficult thing to do because the world around us wants to press us into a certain look, a certain mold, a certain attire, a certain motivation for attire. Well, what about your desire to show others your position? I.e., from the text, sitting on a throne of some kind. Herod's position was that of a king. And on this set day, the text says that he sat on his throne with all the people gathered together. And you get the idea that he wanted the people of Tyre and Sidon and others to notice his status, his position, his royalty. And the throne being the visible symbol of his kingship. What's your throne, church? You may not be occupying the position of a king, but you might still be sitting on your own throne, desiring others to see that you are occupying this particular throne. You occupy this throne and have this longing and this desire for people to see you sitting on this throne. What is that throne for you? I think there's one that is capturing many. Not just here, but many. It's this throne of technology. And let me say this right up front. Technology is, is and can be a wonderful tool God has given to us to be used for his purposes. If we use it rightly, it can be a wonderful tool. We'll say that up front. But I'm concerned that it might be, could be, running some of your lives. It has you in your grip. And you may not even realize it. But it's the throne that you often run to. You run to it for information. You run to it for escape. You run to it for work. You run to it for entertainment. For all sorts of reasons. It's the throne upon which you sit and your life revolves around it. You, you can't find time for God's word, but you can find time to read about what everyone else is doing on the internet and in the social media world. Sitting on the throne of technology, you have information available to you. And that information is held in high esteem. Information about the latest sports event, about local news, about politics, about the latest blog, about your neighbor's business. Has your throne of technology turned you into a busybody? Are you hiding behind the cover of your technology throne? In other words, are you content with presenting a virtual identity? You can look pretty, pretty good on a virtual identity from what I understand. I say from what I understand because I don't have a virtual identity. I don't have one of those icon things. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. don't want to understand it. Again, it can be used for good, but it can also be a big snare, church. Is it your desire to show the world to point them through, to, to your throne of technology? Church, I want to ask a question. How about Christ? Is he alone seated on the throne of your life? If you are a Christian here today, are you showing people to the throne of Christ in your life or pointing them away to some other throne? What are they noticing about your life? And there are other thrones. We could just throw examples out. Family. I'm going to hit some that are are talked about here. Family. Guns. Trucks. Farming. Food. Sports. Your favorite hobbies. Fill in the blank. They can all serve as thrones. Thrones. Herod was arrayed in royal apparel and he sat on his throne, but he also gave an oration. So what about your speech? Attempting to press anyone with the words that you speak? Are you manipulating others with your speech? Are you speaking with an air of superiority over those you speak to? Is there a power play going on with the words that come out of your mouth? men? I'm specifically talking about in the home. Men, are you loving your wife with your words? Women, is your speech pleasing to the Lord as you talk with other women? When your husband is not around, are you careless with your tongue? Are you quick to criticize? Are you quick to belittle? Are you quick to question what he's doing? I want you to see that the text is speaking of Herod the king... But we need to understand something. The things that get Herod into trouble are the same things that can get each one of us into trouble. Same things. The text bears this out, church. Look at verse 22. The people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Herod is giving his oration and all the while the people are shouting the voice of a God and not of a man. Words of praise from men. Flattering words, I believe. Proverb writer says something about flattering words. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it and a flattering mouth works ruin. Or Proverbs 29.5 says a man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. When someone praises you for something you've done and sees you differently because of the position that you hold, i.e. king, or maybe you're a manager and you oversee a bunch of people. Or as a pastor, it's interesting. How many people treat you differently just because that you're a pastor? Just because you have that title? Think about it for just a moment. Men in particular, you might be overseeing lots of people. You might be in a position of important significance where you're at. How do you respond when someone praises you for something you've done or sees you differently because of this position that you hold? What's your typical response? What should be your intentional response? Do you allow the words of praise to go to your head? Do you find ways to channel the praise to the one who deserves all the praise? Someone told me a long time ago, when someone gives you words of praise, immediately... Practice, to me to God, to me to God, it's to me to God, because anything good that comes out of me, it's because of God, to me to God, I want to channel it immediately to God. It's good practice. Whether you preach the word or whether you complete and lead and orchestrate a large project at work or... Receive an award for a job well done. Perhaps it's this. Listen, perhaps it's simply a praise report for what a wonderful meal you just made. Mom, it doesn't really matter what position. It's the praise that we're speaking to. The word here in Acts 12 cautions us, I believe, on both ends of the communication spectrum. Be careful what you say to other people. Check your motives for what you're saying. Are you simply trying to build the other person up to make him feel good? Are you speaking certain words in order to gain favor in return? And on the receiving end of these words, how do you handle words of praise? I believe the text provides clear instruction on how not to handle words of praise that come. I want you to look at what God does when one does not receive rightly the praise from men, however sincere the words may be. Look at verse 23. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. I want you to see here that the judgment of God is quick, it's sharp, and the text gives the reason behind the judgment. It's because he did not give glory to God. Now Herod had lived a life that in many ways did not glorify God... His life was not patterned on giving God glory. And, but it seemed to revolve instead around his status, his position, his word, what he had to say. He was a man consumed, it seems, with his own thoughts and his own ideas. And earlier in the chapter, in chapter 12, you see his motivation for executing James and imprisoning Peter. He seemed to enjoy his position and he longed to please people. Church, we need to understand something here from the text. Life is short, is it not? It's short. short. The Bible says that we are but a mist. We're here for a while and we're gone. The Bible also provides the big picture purpose for us being here on earth. To give him glory, to give him honor, to give him praise, to seek to please him and to do his will in the time that he's given to us. You see the text here assumes a right way of living. Living. The text assumes that one is supposed to bring glory to God. Herod is judged immediately for not giving glory to God. One writer said that his crime, speaking of Herod's, for which he was executed was that he did not give God the glory. The very crime for which all the unregenerate who reject God will be condemned. You can read about it in Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the glory of God for something else. What we're reading about is not something specific to Herod. You can read all about it in Romans chapter 1, 18 through the end of the chapter. By the way, that's the bad news that sits in the context of the good news of the gospel. I want you to see something here about God's judgment of Herod. Let's not get too caught up in the manner of his death. I know some of you young folks like that idea of him being eaten by the worms and you maybe want to talk further about that one. We can discuss that afterwards. I'd be glad to share some thoughts about that. I do believe instead the key here, the the emphasis in the text is looking at God's judgment. What can we learn here about God's judgment? Three things, let me give you. First of all, God's judgment is always just. It's always just. Remember Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, what we really deserve because of our sin is death. And when sin entered the world through that one man, Adam, all sin, right? Romans chapter 5, 12 to 21 gives us that picture of our representative in Adam. Also gives us our representative in Christ. Praise the Lord we have another representative in Christ. But so God, in light of our sin, could justly sentence each one of us to death. So to cry that God's judgment is unjust or it's not fair, just not fair. We need to be careful what we're saying. Because all of us were dead in our transgressions. We need to remember that it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. and So God's judgment to come is just He will show no partiality, the scripture says. He will not show favoritism in this regard. He will not take into consideration what position you hold here on earth. That you are a manager, that you're a CEO, that you take care of the bank account at whatever place that might be. That you're a pastor. Nope. He shows no favoritism. But we need to understand, he does call us to look to the sun. I'm reminded of that bronze pole. Remember that pole, the bronze? He calls us to look to the sun and live. His judgment is connected, church, to his son. He has, in fact, John 5, 27 says, given him, his son, authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. He's the son of God. So his judgment's always just. Secondly, his judgment is a fact assumed from Scripture. His judgment is a fact assumed from Scripture. You can look in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, verse 5 talks about, I'll come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who exploit wage earners, widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This idea, this theme of his judgment It's all throughout the Old Testament, but it's also, even in the New Testament, Matthew 25, Jesus speaks of this. 32 to 46, the parable of the sheep, you remember? On his right hand, and the goats on his left. And at the end of that parable, in verse 46, Jesus says, And these, the goats, will go away to everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Acts 10, verse 42, we were there. This is when Peter is speaking in the home of Cornelius. He says, in the, in the midst of preaching, he says, Christ commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge. There it is, to be judge of the living and the dead. And later on, we'll get to Acts 17, Lord willing. Paul is in Athens and he's speaking to that group in Athens. Remember those folks who had that unknown God? And he's describing. That unknown, he starts right there and he gets to the gospel. He he gets to the gospel from their unknown God. And he says in Acts 17, 31, that God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. How's he going to do it? By what means? In righteousness. By whom? By the man whom he has ordained. That man, church, is Jesus Christ. That's how God's going to be judging the world in righteousness through this man, Jesus Christ. And he's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So God's judgment is always just, but we see God's judgment is is assumed as fact in the scripture. And then thirdly, God's judgment is inescapable. For any of you thinking that you're just going to skirt this one, this is one you're going to skirt to the side. Let me tell you, his judgment is inescapable. You cannot get away from his judgment. Romans 2 Five through nine says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent hearts, you, you are treasuring up for yourself. <laughs> Paul's writing these words saying, you're doing this yourself. Don't be calling God unjust. He's provided everything you need. But you're providing You're treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the, here it is, of the righteous judgment of God. This judgment of God is righteous, church. It's described that way on many different occasions. It's righteous judgment of God. Who will render to each one, according to his deeds, eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for honor, glory, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking, i.e. Herod. And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Herod is judged by God immediately because he does not give glory to God. There is coming a day, church, when Jesus is returning to earth. It will be a recognizable day. All people are going to recognize this day. The trumpet's going to sound. The Lord's going to return with his angels sounding forth his arrival. And the warnings that are put forth in the scripture are many in the form of be alert, be watchful, be ready, beware, keep watch. To live this life apart from an understanding and a recognition and embracing of God's judgment is foolishness. And yet there are many who are doing it. There are many who continue living their lives blinded, ignoring the judgment of God yet to come. You know not the hour of your departure from this earth. I was reading this past week, saw a headline. Maybe you saw a headline as well. I believe it was a family in Alexandria... Father's driving along the road, car decides on the other side of the road to pass, head on, father dies, father has a wife and ten children. Church, there's no guarantee. I don't don't say this necessarily to scare or frighten, but if that's what happens as a result, that you change the way that you're currently living and think differently about God's judgment and about how you need to be living right now, then let it be so. Church, you don't know. That's the reality. I want you to know that God is going to judge each one of you, myself included. I'm in this too. As a holy God, his eternal judgment is necessary because of your sin. And his judgment is carried out on the basis, on the basis of whether one is covered by the blood of Jesus. What have you done with Jesus? Have you believed in his name? Have you received him as Lord of your life? Have you lived in such a way that your profession reflects the way that you operate? Because we do such a good job, church, of talking about this. And intellectually, we know a lot of information. The question is, are you living for Jesus this morning? God knows your heart. Praise the Lord, he knows your heart. He's the final judge. His judgment is inescapable. And see, for the believer in Christ, this is wonderful news. I can't think of a better judge to judge me than God. Praise the Lord, he's my judge. Put me into the hands of the Almighty. But for the one who is apart from Christ, this is frightening news. For this God that we read about here in the scripture is also, Hebrew writer says, "a consuming fire. For those who do not know Him and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they shall be punished." Second Thessalonians chapter one, seven through10 says. They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Are you living today in light of God's judgment to come? And are you quick to give God glory in all that you do? You see, church, when man's words come your way, resolve to give God the glory. He has done great things. I'm reminded of that song. He has done great things. Bless His holy name. He's showered you with his protection, his goodness, his favor. He is the one who's given you the ability. Let's understand this. Deuteronomy 8.18. He's the one who's given you the ability to produce an income. He's the one who has gifted you. He's the one who has equipped you. He's the one who's given you those talents and abilities. When's the last time you thanked God apart from the meal table, church? Give God glory with your life. All of it. All of it. You're here to bring God glory, not to glory in yourself. You're here to make Him known. So we need to stop trying to make ourselves known so much. We're here to make His name glorious. How much energy is being put into making a name for ourselves? We're here to further His kingdom not further our own. The judgment of God, these realities, heaven and hell, Jesus, Satan, eternal separation from God, eternal fellowship with God, these things we don't like to speak of all that often. But the question needs to go forward. Are you living your life in light of these biblical realities? These are going to happen. These are true. God's just In his judgment. And his judgment is coming. Keep looking at the text. Verse 24. We see the word of God. But. The word of God grew and multiplied. There's a contrast. Set up here in the text. And once again Luke. Is presenting the reader. With a summary text. We spent two weeks on a summary text. A while back in Luke. Or excuse me Acts chapter 9 Verse 31. Here's another summary. After detailing the death of Herod... ...he provides another brief summary. Now the placement of such a summary is significant. It provides encouragement in light of recent persecution... ...and it provides lasting hope in light of man's schemes. The king is contrasted here with the word of God. What do we know about these two? We know the king just died. The word, however, remains... The psalmist says, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled, or it stands firm in the heaven. Psalm 119, verse 89. And while writing to Timothy from the chains of prison, Paul is able to encourage him and to say that while I got these chains on, he reminds him that the word of God is not chained. The king was eaten by worms and died. The word of God grew. ...and multiplied. Stephen may be stoned and James may be beheaded... ...but the word of God continues to grow and multiply. Persecution has not stopped the church of Jesus Christ. The summary statement here declares that God's word remains. Amen, that's good news. Church, have you seen the word of God through the lens of history? Have you seen all the trials all the persecution, all the attempts to destroy and discount this word of God. Throughout the ages, man has attempted to usurp God's authority. And time and time again, God's word continues to move forward. It continues to grow and multiply. God is faithful to preserve his word in this generation. And church, you have a part to play in the advancement of this gospel that we're speaking of this morning. See that this word gets into the hands of your children. And pray earnestly that God gets this word into their hearts. This word has power to save, amen? Has a power to save. Look at the last verse. Mission of God, the mission continues. Verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Again, keep the big idea. The king dies, God's judgment, the word grows and now the mission continues. And I believe this is a fitting place to end. I want you to see that Luke is once again setting the stage for events yet to come. He did this back in Acts chapter 9. If you look back at the end of chapter 9, after Peter went to Joppa and took care of the situation there with Dorcas, raised her to life, it says in verse 43 that, so it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. Tells us where he lodged. Seems like just a small ...piece of information, but it was in Joppa... ...where God was going to call Peter... ...to his next ministry assignment. Here in Acts 12, 25... ...Luke informs us that Saul and Barnabas... ...return from Jerusalem. Remember, if you look back at the end of Acts chapter 11... ...remember, the prophets come from Jerusalem... ...one of them, Agabus, stands... ...and he shows by the Spirit... ...talks about this famine that's coming... And then 29 says that the disciples according to their ability determined to send relief to the brethren. And so they send this relief money, this gift, verse 30, they send it to the elders in the church by way of whom? Barnabas and Saul. So now right here at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, Luke is telling us that Barnabas and Saul, they returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. Luke here also mentions Mark. And that's significant because Mark is going to accompany his cousin Barnabas. How do we know he's his cousin? Colossians chapter 4 verse 10 tells us that piece of information. So Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, is going to accompany Saul. And the three of them are going to begin the missionary journey. Beginning in Acts chapter 13. So Luke describes the judgment of God. The word of God. And he reiterates here in closing the mission of God. God is moving the pieces in place to further His kingdom work, to further advance the gospel. And Saul and Barnabas up to this point, they've been about God's work for quite some time, in fact. And yet the Lord is about to call them to the very end of the earth. Remember the outline of Acts 1, verse 8. It's about to come to fruition. The witness called for in Jerusalem... Judea and Samaria has been seen the mission though is about to continue on to the end of the earth many more persecutions and trials lie ahead many more stand ready to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ and yet we'll see that God's word will prevail through it all his mission will continue Church, we need to see something this morning, that God's judgment is a sure thing. We need to see that his word is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. And we need to see that his mission, his victory march, as the song says, his victory march continues till the day every eye and heart shall see him. So as you you pull off to the side of the road and you catch a glimpse of the view from Acts 12, 20 to 25, I hope you see at least three things here in this text. They all relate to God. They all relate to his purposes. God's judgment. It's just. It's assumed to be fact in scripture. It's inescapable. God's word. It grows and multiplies once again in the face of persecution. It stands forever. And we need to understand too, recognize from the word, that faith comes by hearing this word. Romans 10, 17 tells us. And we see God's mission. God's mission continues How does it continue? It continues through God's people. Equipped with God's spirit and God's word. I want you to see the connection between these three. I believe it's important to recognize it. See, you will not actively participate in his gospel mission without or apart from a desire for his word. And you will not desire and delight in His Word, apart from a living and active relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Apart from recognizing your need for a Savior. Apart from seeing your sin-cursed condition and crying out to God for His mercy. At church, this morning you're given an opportunity to do something about that relationship between you and God through Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans 13, it's high time to awake out of your sleep. Some of you have been sleeping for quite some time. It's high time to awake. In light of God's judgment to come, where do you stand today in relationship to God through His Son? Jesus Christ is his word in you and are you actively participating in his gospel mission praise the Lord for his word this morning let's pray Father, we're grateful for your word. Thank you for teaching us through your word. Father, we thank you for your just judgment. We thank you for what your word says about this judgment to come. Father, I pray that we would, in light of this judgment to come, be found faithful. That we would be found purifying ourselves just as you are pure. That we would be found pursuing holiness in our lives. Exercising ourselves in godliness. Father, I pray that you would convict us this morning through your spirit of, of the ways in which we're living burn away the chaff in our lives that needs to go, the things that need to go, the things that don't really matter. May we remember our witness in all things. We thank you that you are a just God. We thank you that you are our judge. We thank you as well for this word that you've given to us. We thank you that it continues to grow. It continues to spread May it do so in and through us, your church. Father, we thank you for the mission that you have set before us. The mission that you have called us to participate in. Your mission includes and involves people to accomplish what you would have your people to do. And Father, some 2,000 years removed from what we're reading in the text... That mission is still continuing. It's still going forward. And you still desire to use your people to accomplish your mission. Uh, Father, I pray we would be diligent and desirous as your children to carry out this mission in the power of your Holy Spirit. Seeing that others come to know this God whom we serve. That in light of the judgment to come, that we would be reminded... To persuade other men. If we know this judgment yet to come. How can we not but speak? Give us boldness to speak words of love. To those who need to hear. And may we be about practicing each day. And preaching each day. This gospel of Jesus Christ to ourselves. For we too need to hear it. And be reminded of it. Thank you Father for your word. We thank you that your word endures forever. I pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.